Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Let's do it. This is Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, we are talking with Brian Blunt about the 1996 Nora Ephron flick, Michael. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and teacher living in Pennsylvania. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch, and then we gather up for conversation from our perspective as pastors, as theologians, and as folks who just love movies. This week, our guest Brian Blunt has asked us to go see Michael, so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we ask what Michael has to do with life and ministry, theology, and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Michael for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be Sunday, December 10th, the second Sunday in Advent. And finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from Matt and I on something else we're reading, we're watching, or following. But before we get too far down the line, I want to introduce our guest, Brian Blunt. Brian is the president and professor of New Testament at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. He is the author of numerous books on scripture and homiletics, most recently including An Evasion of the Dead, Preaching Resurrection, which I reread just about every Holy Week and invariably find something new inside. Brian, we are so glad to have you here. Thanks for being here. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. I also assign Go Preach regularly in my preaching classes, so it's oh, fun. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm teaching him a class on preaching the gospel of Mark right now, and the students are loving the book. So oh, we great. thank you for that. Oh, great. Thank you. Nice to know. So this one is a bit of a deep cut. It's from the heart of the mid-90s post-pulp fiction renaissance of John Travolta, this uh, Nora Ephron, I guess we call it a romantic comedy called Michael. William Hurt plays Frank Quinlan, a tabloid reporter who tracks down a story about a woman living with her guardian angel, who turns out to be Travolta's very body and very worldly Michael, with his huge room-hogging wings very much included. Frank convinces Michael to come back to Chicago with him via road trip so that they can get some good pictures and cash in on his story. But along the way, of course, Michael works a bit on Frank's heart and opens it to one of their traveling companions, played by Andy McDowell. So I guess it's a romantic comedy, but of course the muse at the center of this movie is Travolta, at the height of his surprising mid-90s charm chewing his way through the role of this chain-smoking, troublemaking, larger-than-life ladies' magnet character, perhaps a far cry from the angel of popular imagination. But then maybe there's some resonance with the angel of scriptural or theological imagination. Uh, Brian, you tell me, why this movie? What does Michael have to do with our contemporary theological imagination? Well, I picked Michael because uh, the character um, gives us a sense of uh, God breaking in and uh, moving into the world in which we find ourselves today. And it's not an, unex an expected kind of breaking in. It's an unusual breaking in um, in the small places of life uh, where we um, find, you know, this uh, woman that um, the angel is living with. Uh, that's one thing that's um, striking to me, that um, if there's going to be an angelic intervention, it's going to be in some out-of-the-way kind of place um, in a nondescript kind of uh, community in town with someone that we would um, not very much expect God to be breaking in upon. So that's the first thing that was interesting to me. Um, I started looking at this uh, movie and thinking about the movie because I was working on a text um, in the book of Acts, uh, the story of uh, Philip and the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, you remember that story very well, um, where Philip is... Um, 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 transported to a place where he's been the spirit and he finds um, the Ethiopian eunuch who's been uh, to the temple and can't understand what he's reading and uh, needs some help explaining it. And Philip does that. Um, how did I think of Michael in that regard? Well, there's a place in the, um, in the uh, movie where, if you probably remember, 
Michael is asked to do certain kinds of things to demonstrate that he is actually a real angel, miraculous kinds of things, either big miracles or little miracles. And he always declines, and he declines by saying, um, that's not my area. Um, in other words, there are other angelic beings and forces that um, handle the kind of issues uh, the um, characters in the movie are asking him to, uh, um, to uh, demonstrate with his abilities. Uh, he always says, it's not my area. And I looked at uh, the uh, text with uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and realized that uh, what God has done is pushed both Philip and the eunuch into places that are not their area in order to demonstrate and to make a point about how God breaks in in the world. Uh, Philip's area is uh, not on this um, uh, road where he finds the Ethiopian eunuch. He's been preaching and teaching in urban areas and communities. Um, all of a sudden now he's cast into a place outside of his um, 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 well area of working and asked to do something um, that um, is completely unanticipated and unexpected. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch also is out of his area. He's been to the temple. He's been uh, trying to learn things about God. Because he is a eunuch, um, um, he's by um, the legal definition of the time, the holiness and purity code, kind of a broken person who doesn't belong in the company and community of the faithful, and yet he's being drawn into that company and community of the faithful through um, his own desires to know more about God, and now through uh, Philip's um, appearance and uh, teaching. Uh, all of this suggests to me that um, God's breaking in happens in unusual, um, unanticipated ways. And in this case, uh, with Philip and the eunuch, um, Philip doesn't anticipate being where he is. The eunuch does anticipate wanting to be where he is, but he's out of place given the kind of uh, physical um, profile he represents in the story. So um, this story seems to suggest to me, um, along with the uh, movie itself, that um, God breaks in upon us and um, pulls us into areas where we don't want to be, um, which are not anticipated by us, and that God uses us in those um, moments and places. So you have an angel who is in a place he's not expected to be. You have Philip in a place he's not expected to be. You have the eunuch in a place where he ought not to be because of his circumstance. And in all of that, God is making an appearance and uh, God is doing something transformational. Yeah, I think, and it resonates with the, what you're saying resonates with the movie in the sense that the the reporters themselves are in places that they don't want to be. They they have to go on this road trip, this long road trip with Michael through rural America mainly and look at things like the largest cast iron pan and the, and the biggest ball of twine. And and these are the things that Michael finds fascinating. He's he's so interested in this stuff. And they, the urbane um, reporter types, uh, can't be bothered with it. They want to get him back so that they can make a sideshow of him. And yet he's pulling them constantly into new places where they actually find themselves. Um, they don't want to go there, but it's there that they can actually be formed. And, exact, and and that seems to me to be kind of a plan that Michael has um, that they don't realize. He's actually forming them in a way that they don't understand. So you're right. There's all of this. Um, I mean, the humor is built around the fact that they don't want to be with him. They don't want to be on this long road trip. Um, they don't sense that there is a purpose behind each of the little things that he's doing. And then there are places in the movie where clearly— um, uh, Michael demonstrates that he has a plan. They don't seem to get it. You know, there is a scene where um, he's in the, uh, um, I guess he's in a restaurant. He's talking about um, um, uh, how he um, is predictive about certain things. Uh, he tells them uh, when uh, they're going to, uh, well, I, I, he actually tells Andy McDowell's character when she should um, sing the, the music that um, he's been waiting for her to sing all the time. Um, he's anticipating their particular moves. He's planned all of this out, um, and they don't understand it, um, yet there is a plan in place. And I think that's what the text I was looking at with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, neither one of them understand what's going on, and yet there is a plan in place. There is a formation that's taking place. And it's not even that, that the not only that the angel that Michael shows up in an unexpected place, but he shows up as an unexpected character too. I mean, he stands in pretty stark contrast to some of the kind of angels of conventional imagination because he's so body and he's so earthy and you know he's he's a sexual being and he has a ladies magnet and he's he pours more sugar on his food than like anyone can possibly conceive of. It's a he's got a a love affair with 
the kind of the the incarnational here that I think is is really surprising, uh, especially you know in, in in real contrast to kind of the the angels who get depicted as beings of of purity or refinement or kind of um, almost something ascetic. There there's he's he's a different kind of of spiritual guide than we're used to seeing. And there's a sense of humor about him that um, also is different from what we usually sense when we uh, think about uh, what God is doing in the world. So that sense of humor, the sense of being misplaced. Uh, I think you're right um, in the sense of the incarnational. Throughout the the movie, um, there is always this sense that he's going to miss being a part of uh, the the um, corporeal nature of uh, humankind, the the the, the body, the, the 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 bodily world and existence that um, humans inhabit, that's something that he cherishes and relishes, mm-hmm. and that's why he uses the sugar, and that's why he is as body as he is. He's enjoying the 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 richness of human physical life. Um, the incarnational reality is something that um, he feasts upon in the movie, and he's going to miss it. And uh, I think he's, in some ways, the movie is trying to suggest that um, we should um, appreciate more the kind of um, human physical beauty that surrounds us all the time. We tend to miss it if we, we don't uh, we don't appreciate it as much as we should. And seeing the 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 um, human reality through Michael's eyes helps us um, appreciate it as something that's um, a little bit more unusual than we tend to see it day in and day out. So, so yeah, that's helpful because I have a kind of mixed relationship with this movie as a Christmas movie. I mean, it kind of announces itself as a Christmas movie. It comes out on Christmas Day. It's built around the holiday season, and it has that kind of Christmas movie sense of romantic sentimentality about it. Like, the point of the Christmas season is that uh that the that the male and female leads will will get together in the end and open their hearts and um that will be that will be the real meaning of christmas and i i kind of bristle against that a little bit um at the other hand there is something beautifully incarnational about the way in which michael is presented that strikes me as a kind of christmas story in and of itself that we have uh uh Jesus, who is is born in this very material and incarnational way that is in the manger, that is there with all the dirt and the animals. There's something very worldly about that that, um, that I think this movie gets to in, in ways that were really kind of captivating for me and different uh, than we've seen with so many other kind of portrayals of, of the angelic in pop culture. Yeah, I think so too, uh, Matt, like this movie seems to be pulling in a couple of different directions. There's the conventions of the romantic comedy that Nora Ephron is totally familiar with and is in, in some ways the sort of modern master of, I mean, it's almost got some Elizabethan sentimentality where like, how do you know it's a happy ending? Well, they get married at the end. Like, and it seems a little strange that they're going to go get married, even. But and yeah. yet, that's the convention. The convention is, is that at the end of it, you get married, um, and uh, and so it's pulling in the romantic comedy way. And yet, this character of Michael is, in one way, the sort of fish out of water as a type. But and yet, he seems to understand the human condition better than humans do. Um, to your to your point earlier, Brian, that the um, they're being taking places that they don't want to go, which reminds me of like the end of John where, where Jesus tells Peter, like, right, right, go. I'm going to, I'm going to take you to a place you, you don't want to go. I'm, you know, there was a time where, you know, you fastened your own belt. Uh, and so Michael does have this angelic, uh, uh, like mission. And yet the corporeal form, the very terrestrial nature of him, uh, might, sort of overshadow the romantic comedy part of this in part, because I think, I think maybe the climax of the movie is not that they get together at the end. It's that he resurrects this dog. Yeah. I think that's where the climax is as well. I mean, that's, that's where um, he comes out of his area. I mean, Michael has a prescripted area that he talks about his, his, his battle area. He's the archangel. 
And yet um, his, uh, he's pulled out of that by the longing of these humans who want to see life restored. And in essence, that's what he is. I mean, he's life restored. And all of this kind of humor, it's earthiness, it's um, bodiliness. Um, it, in many ways, it's that moment um, where he actually um, lives into, I guess, the expectation of what an angelic being is. An angelic being is someone who represents life that's um, um, that's. Yeah, I don't want to use the word um, um, eternal because that's not, I think uh, the movie is in many ways operating against that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, it is life that is uh, reborn, renewed. Um, It is about kind of incarnation that is also about resurrection. The movie mixes the two together because of the Christmas sensibility and because of what happens with the dog at the end. I mean, you have both of those themes working together to build something um, a little bit unique and also, um, um, you know, irreverent. It's a, it's a, it's an angelic movie that's very irreverent, and it's because of the irreverence that it works. So there's this, there's a story in the Talmud that this reminded me of as I was watching this movie, where this father and son. Um, bury themselves in a cave up to their neck so that they can just read Torah all day and mainly disembodying themselves in order that they can just like pay attention to the study of Torah. And then every so often they have to leave their cave in order to go get food and some other things. And whenever they leave, they would see farmers who were working the land and just doing, um, just being a part of the material world. And the two rabbis get like deeply indignant and start like shooting fireballs from their eyes and burning up the world. At which point God, the voice of God comes down and says like, have you left your cave to burn up my world? Like go back to your cave. And God basically banishes them back to their cave because, uh, because they've misunderstood that the material world was made good, that it was that the terrestrial is uh, is not antithetical to the spiritual, but is a part and parcel with it. So the best part of the story is that um, after they return to the cave, the father never seems to learn the lesson, and he he remains indignant to people who are a part of the material world. But the the son does, and so every time they leave the cave, the the father will burn something up, but the son will come in his wake and restore it all, and will will heal the world. Um, so as the father sort of gets mad, the son comes as this um, this healer who's repairing all of the the brokenness that follows in his father's wake. Well, I think that's a really good connecting piece. You know, I, I, the other thing I think um, contend, I mean, continues with me. I mean, to follow in that that line is that um, you know there is an appreciation of the of the um, physical um, in this movie. Uh, that uh, we often um, have difficulty with in in terms of uh, Christian sensibility. We have this kind of, uh, you know, Greek philosophical um, orientation to our faithfulness that um, looks at uh, things that are bodily in nature as to be somewhat negative and things more spiritual um, that um, are apart from the body to be a little more holy and pure. And the movie kind of celebrates the bodiliness of uh, the world and the, the material and uh, living into our um, human um, um, bodily sensibilities is a good thing. And uh, Michael is a representation of that. And he pulls the people in the story along with him. Um, I mean, in his journey, the things he wants to see, they seem silly on the surface, you know, like the biggest ball of twine or the biggest frying pan, all those kinds of things. Um, but in essence, they are um, celebrating kind of the, the physical reality and world around us that we often dismiss as the lesser of the important um, parts of our reality, the spiritual and the mental being the, 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 um, the things we highlight. Michael seems to turn that on its head and uh, celebrate the physical. I found him really interesting. I mean, granted, this is my own professional perspective, but I, I found him interesting uh, as, as a kind of model of pastoral relationship, kind of along the same ways. I mean, there is a, um, not in all of my pastoral relationships, but certainly in some of them, there's been a moment early on, usually in a time of pastoral care, like I'm visiting somebody in the hospital, and we have a moment where we, where we kind of have to negotiate whether or not we're going to use profanity in our pastoral relationship. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Uh, 
like, you know, this, so, someone's in there for some terrible diagnosis. And what we want to say is this whole thing is bullshit. And we right. are just mad as hell about all of it. And there's this kind of brief dance of like, it, it, are they going to say that? Is the pastor going to say that? Maybe they're going to say it and then look at me and be like, is it okay if I just said that in front of my pastor? Or maybe I'm going to say it and kind of look at them and be like, look, I'm giving you permission to call this thing what it is. There's this little dance of like, it, are we allowed to do that? And I found, you know, I, I am not at the point of Travolta's character here of like, I don't, I don't live into life that much, man. But there's, um, <laughs> but there's some pieces of it that were really, that, that were really freeing in terms of, look, this is a, this is a different kind of pastoral relationship that allows us to, to, to live into the things of the world that give. Um, that that allow us to still be formed for what God is trying to do, and I I, I appreciated that, uh, despite you know there's other pieces of his kind of pastoral thing. I mean, it would it's almost like a, in its own way, it's almost kind of a celebrity project for him, where like he can get away with anything, and everybody loves him, and it's all charisma, and that that's a little bit different. But there was something, some something interesting to me about the the way in which he's able to to get on the level of the people that he's pastoring. So mm. combining these two comments, it, it's making me think that maybe one of the things that's missing from the U.S. church is a deeper and more sophisticated theology of pleasure. I'm not, and like Michael seems to like the pleasurable. I mean, mm. he's in an almost Epicurean sense. And, oh, and, yes. Yeah, sure. Um, and, uh, and to your point earlier, Brian, that, that we have the vestiges of this Greek philosophical tradition that's very much a part of our own theologies and um, very much a part of the, the practices that are central to the church. There's also the sort of long history of, uh, of U.S. puritanical understandings of bodies and, um, and what they're good for. Uh, and yet Michael comes down as this angelic heavenly being and seems to have no problem with pleasure um and sees it as sort of part of what it means to be human and yet it's very rare that i ever hear people talk about the value of pleasure whether it's um sexual pleasure or whether it's sort of bodily pleasure whether it's what you consume drink eat um smoke i mean there's there's very little to talk about that we we sort of carve out places where we can be silent where we don't have to like admit that we enjoy this stuff but in what ways are we as a church also trying to sort of not just meet people in their need matt but also try and provide for them a world where they can be joyful about the pleasurable things that happen all right we are about ready to move on but i don't want to do so without first saying how grateful we are for our partnership with the christian century i want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing Catherine Reckless has a recent article on The Good Place, which is worth your attention. First of all, Adam, The Good Place is the best major network sitcom since Parks and Recreation. You wrote that copy, and I fully agree I did. with you. Do you? Yeah. Are you, are you even watching it? Oh, I yeah. It. I, we actually watched it. I, we, uh, I had my parents watch the first season while we were there for Thanksgiving. Um, didn't quite oh, finish they it, but they loved it. So it was really fun to revisit all yeah, of that, especially really in light of how the show twists and turns over time. Uh, this show is so stinking good and smart. It's got a deep fascination with moral philosophy and ethics and also manages to be like super funny at the same time. Uh, so Catherine does a great job discussing how a show about the afterlife and moral philosophy is also really important for our current world. So check it out. Also, if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Brian and Adam, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, looking at the lectionary passages for year B, the second Sunday in Advent. We have... Year B, Matt, happy new year. Yeah, happy new year, Adam. We made it. Uh, <laughs> we did it. So we have Comfort, Comfort My People in Isaiah 40. We have Mark's account of John the Baptist citing that same scripture. Alongside, we have Second Peter on the day of the Lord and a psalm about God's faithfulness to Israel. 
So Brian, as you think about Michael and think about these texts, what resonates for you for the preaching task for this week? Well, I mean, you just said it, comfort, comfort my people. Isn't that what um, Michael in, his, um, in all of his uh, glory, the, 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 I mean, both the physical and the spiritual, because there's a spiritual component to it as well. I mean, that's what he's doing. There's a brokenness um, in uh, this uh, community of people that um, he encounters. And uh, what he's doing is, in essence, uh, bringing kind of a, a comfort to them that, that they don't themselves realize. They come looking for one thing, the um, absurd and the, um, the ludicrous, and uh, he gives them a kind of a meaning uh, that they had not anticipated. Uh, so he actually um, heals a brokenness in them that they don't themselves realize, um, uh, a break that they don't realize they have in them. I mean, so he, the story is about healing people, um, uh, uh, healing a rupture that people don't know they have. And there's a comfort that's, uh, that's brought to uh, the community um, in a way that um, I think is interesting, because if you note, the three people who go looking for the angels, so they're kind of the quote unquote, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the community of the, I don't know, they would be, I would, um, um, suggest the, the kind of believing community, the ones who are searching for something or searching for God. They're the ones who have the trouble believing all of the things about Michael, the people Michael encounters along the way who are kind of the bystanders, the people who come out of left field in the gospel of Mark, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, they're the ones who actually kind of recognize that there's something special about this guy and are drawn to his charisma while the others who, who come looking for him, they resist the charisma, they resist the things he's offering. And yet he is, um, even through their um, disbelief, um, moving them toward a healing um, that they don't um, realize they need. So in that sense, um, Michael suggests that God is doing things to and for us uh, that we don't anticipate and that we don't really realize we, um, we um, have a need to, um, to have God intervene for. So I think that's one of the interesting things. He's bringing a comfort they don't realize they need. What about you, Adam? Are there places where the scripture resonated for you with this movie? Yeah, so I was, I was also taken by Isaiah's imagery that then shows up in Mark's gospel, um, especially this image of making straight the path of God. And it seems to say, it seems to be, saying both Isaiah and John the Baptist seem to be saying that, you know, that there's this deep longing to expedite God's coming, right? So let's make straight the, the paths of the Lord. Let's, let's, instead of these windy roads, we make straight, but also let's lay the mountains low so that we can see God coming from far off, that we have some vantage where we can all understand the glory of God together. Um, and I was thinking about how part of our job in ministry is to make the way straight for God, um, that we that we try and help people see God far off, um, and that sometimes requires getting some obstacles out of the way of people's sight, um, and yet it also means um, that there are people whose lives are filled with windy, circuitous routes. I'm just thinking about like people in Philadelphia who I know, um, they have to take four buses to work. Right. You know, like what does it mean to make straight their way uh, as well? Uh, or the children who have to take the long way to school or all of the ways in which our world requires certain people to avoid the direct route for fear of their own security. Um, what happens when we're also making their roads straight? In what, in what way is the seeing of... A, the glory of God necessarily a communal event. And so you need to actually make their way straight to get back home in order that everyone might see this event together. And yet at the same time, I'm watching Michael and Michael is about this circuitous route. It's about windy roads, right? They, they don't even get on a highway. They can't get on the highway because they don't want to, uh, they don't want Michael to be known by anybody. So they're, they're on these back roads and they're going over hills and, uh, uh, you know, like windy roads are, are, I mean, half this movie is just a shot of a car driving down a road. Um, and it, it started to help me think about the value of indirect routes. And sometimes we need the indirect route to help us prepare for the glory that's coming. Like we need the time of the indirect route in order for us to actually see uh, the out-of-the-way journey, the the long way, 
is necessary for us to actually come to some vision. And uh, Kierkegaard talks a lot about this in his own theologies of indirectness and how, how important it is that we overhear the word of God um, in order that we might encounter it rightly. And so I, I'm, I'm sort of toying with, uh, with direct and indirectness as account of, on account of Michael's inspiration. How about you, Matt? That's really interesting, especially with this Isaiah reading, especially leading up to Christmas, because I, again, I feel like this film has uh, part of my soapbox is about the way in which Christmas movies become invariably kind of about um, heterosexual romance uh, in a way that I think too narrowly defines the scope of what theologically we proclaim to be happening. Uh, you know, we, we take kind of people, long listeners of the show have heard me talk about this before, like Christmas Carol is kind of the urtext of all of this, and it is uh, Scrooge's conversion to a, a, a broad scope of what God is doing in, 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 in um, Dickensian London, and a broad commitment to opening himself to both um, a cheer with his fellow man, but also a sense of the work of justice and the work of righteousness. And that kind of gets conscripted, uh, kind of a, it gets um, shrunk over time to be um, people who have uh, conversion experiences that just make them better romantic partners, which is kind of where this film leads. And I feel like that is too narrow an understanding of what the comfort comfort in Isaiah is is getting at that it is not I think and I think you're kind of getting at this too it is it is it is not just you know one person opens themselves up to to something new but um we all reorient ourselves to the people around us and to the work of God um I also was looking briefly at this second Peter reading that has this kind of famous line about what the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, but is patient with you. Um, and I, and I was thinking about kind of the work of patience in this movie mm. that, um, you know, as Brian was saying earlier, like Michael kind of knows how this is all going to play out. Like he's, it's kind of like he's read the screenplay already. And so he knows the places where people are going to need to do specific things. And, and it gives him this kind of patience about where the, where the story is going, which allows him to have all these moments of joy. Like he doesn't have to act urgently because he kind of has a sense of where the beats are and where all this is going. And it, it seemed like a kind of model of a, of a different kind of Advent faithfulness. Advent always feels so impatient to me. Like we're so, we're, it's so urgent. Um, and we, all, and we feel so desperate. And I wonder what it means for us to preach patience um, with, that has some faithfulness and has some joy in it um, because, because of our faith in something that is surely coming. That's, mm. that's what I've got. There's also a sense of the unexpected that's uh, there with the messenger. Um, you know, I'm going to send my messenger ahead of you. Mm. Well, what does that messenger look like? Um, how do we determine who God's messenger is going to be? And you wouldn't pick Michael. I, I mean, right. I mean, right. you just simply not pick him to be God's messenger. And how often might it be um, that um, that that God's presence shows up in our lives, in our world, and we just don't realize it because it's not the package we expect that package to be. And then what do we do with that? I, um, and do we do we do we um, want God to prove God's self to us? Um, I think we often do. We want to have some measure of assurance that this is God at work. And um, every everything in the story seems to suggest that Michael is the opposite of that. He doesn't want you to ever be sure that uh, this is God at work. And that's why even he, I mean, even at the end, he resists when he says it's not my error. He's resisting all of those moments when we want definite proof or the characters want definite proof. He doesn't want to give it to them. And that's why he's saying that's not my area. It's for them, not for him, that he's making that comment. This is a messenger who's unlike anything one expects God's messenger to be. And that perhaps may be a part of the story that's really important and poignant for us as Christians to pick up on. God, when God breaks in, um, does so in ways we least expect. Is that a good analog for folks who are thinking about John the Baptist on this Sunday, too? I mean, John the Baptist surely doesn't look like the prophets that, you, that, that people were expecting. Exactly. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting too because this Mark passage is like we're in the second season of or second Sunday in Advent, and um, at least in year B, we get we get Mark's account, right, which is without a nativity, and begins with you know the the beginning you know the gospel of Jesus Christ or something like that. Right? Is that and and I read that first line um, this week in light of the lack of the resurrection account later and i don't know if like that's the first i don't it's the first time that i've been able to sort of notice that which is mark's mark doesn't have a resurrection account and you know as as you know brian like there's a lot of questions as to why what's going on here um and but it's fun to read the lack of the resurrection account in light of the very first sentence of the gospel, which is that this is the beginning of it, right? This isn't, this isn't the sum total of, of it. This isn't the, the whole story, but this is the beginning of the story. And, um, and I keep thinking about that, considering what does it mean to, to wait in the midst of Advent and, and wonder, like, how am I in the middle of a story that's already going on? That, that that began as far back as, you know, Mark's gospel and is now present in uh, in my life today. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I agree with that. I, I think it's very important that uh, one picks up on the thing that is the beginning of the good news, because um, I think the way Mark ends the gospel at 16a is to invite the reader to come in, participate, um, to tell the good news that the characters in the story are too afraid to tell. So you're being invited into the story a story that you think you are in control of. And, I, and Michael is a similar kind of thing. It's um, uh, the uh, characters who think they have some sense of control by getting him to go where they want him to go, ultimately realize that they're not the ones in control in this story. And, and I think Mark is presenting a similar kind of thing. So I, I like that um, you're picking up a sense of the beginning of the good news. It's the start of it. So I... Um... I don't want to let this conversation go without talking about how this movie is in some ways formed by the most important angel in Christmas movies. Right. Which is there, there is some, it's a wonderful life in the background of this movie. At at the very end of the movie, they're searching for Michael. They think he's gone. He's gone back up to heaven or something like that. And the thing that notifies them that, Michael is around as that bells start ringing, right. whether it's wind chime or whether it's jingle bells, various right. different moments. And it felt like the movie was beginning to play on, on it's a wonderful life. And it's, and the, the angel in that picture and contrasting that with Michael and the, the, the two things that they're trying to do, because they, they in some ways have the same mission, right? They're, they're there to help broken people realize um, that the relationships that are in front of them, are enough. They're redemptive in their own way. Um, but were you sensing or hearing It's a Wonderful Life? I'm on record as not liking It's a Wonderful Life as a movie, <laughs> but um, as, as two people who I, I know might consider uh, It's a Wonderful Life worth watching, how is it operating in the background of this movie or did it at all? Yes, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't. I, now that you talk about it, I get the sense of the bells ringing and all of that. I didn't pick up on that um, when I um, have watched the movie in the past. And, um, uh, there, you know, there is, and my, my wife has the same sense of the kind of the the overall, I guess, sensibility that is too sweet at the end of of uh, Michael. You know, with them coming together and all that type of thing. It's somewhat um, like. Um, you know the, the there is one kind of presentation of um, of the movie in its in its main frame, which is people who are struggling to find a sense of um, the divine in their midst, and then the assurance of it at the end, which kind of um, goes against the you know the the. The, the sensibility that you can never be sure that's there throughout most of the movie. So I would agree that there is a too neat an ending. I, I think there's too neat an ending to it. Uh, but for me, the the thing that's um, important about the ending is not so much about um, the couple and them coming together. It's about the old lady and her dancing with Michael. I mean, that's, for me, where the movie makes its mark. Um, as with the little dog, now with the lady, um, there is life that goes on, and it's life that enjoys life. I mean, they're dancing at the end. I mean, that's what that's what 
eternal life is like. It's, it's pleasure. I mean, you said it earlier, Adam. It's pleasure. And that pleasure goes on forever. That, that for me, more than the couple getting together, is what Michael was striving to reach for. Yeah, I have a, I have a couple of questions about the, like, the last act of this film, or like the last 15 minutes of it. And I, I guess, I, much to my own surprise, by the time I got there, I felt like it needed to be longer. Um, huh. it, it's like they, there's very little dwelling in the, the period where um, the male and female leads are, are fighting with each other and estranged from each other. It seemed like they should have sat with that a little bit. Um, and then when they came back together, I mean, they see each other on the street and immediately he says, I love you. And the next thing he says is, will you marry me? <laughs> he asks four times. She keeps saying no, one for each of her ex-husbands that we've heard about multiple times during the movie. And then she says yes on the last time and then the movie is over. And it feels, it's felt so abrupt. It felt a little uncomfortable to watch him kind of propose over and over. I, I didn't need for marriage to be where it ended. I needed, I would have been happy for them to see each other on the street and smile at each other and, and have that kind of kindling a possibility and then cut. But it felt very oddly paced, uh, which is not a helpful uh, preaching strategy for Sunday morning. I just needed to get it off my chest. Um, I do but agree I think- with you that the, that the joyfulness of the dancing with the... Um, uh, with the old lady at the end is really where the heart of the movie goes. And, and I, I appreciated that scene quite a bit. Yeah. And I think that that, again, like the movie's pulling in a number of different directions. It wants to tell the story about this angel and, and who is ostensibly the center of the movie. And if we're being a little bit cynical is the reason that the movie got made is because John Travolta at this point in his career has enough juice to get a movie made Perhaps. how he wants to get that. He, and, and they're not going to like cut him out. You know, so they focus on him for a good three quarters of the movie in that last that last act. That's really two acts, um, like rolled into one, is is forced and quick. But you know, back to this this image of this dance, it just felt like um, this unseen reality that might be around us all of the time. Mm. There, I mean, Advent is talking about that a lot, which is like suddenly angels just sort of show up like out of nowhere. And, and Michael does show up in these Advent texts and like does talk to different, different people and say like, okay, I got a message for you. Um, and scripture kind of suggests that there's this strange heavenly realm that's going on around us. And we can think about that heavenly realm in the typical ways that Michael is, um, depicted within Christian tradition, which is with a sword and a shield. There's a, there's an amazing statue at Princeton university um, of Michael the Archangel over one of the halls there. And he's menacing and huge and like, and looks as if he's like part Greek God. Um, and yet this movie seems to say like, no, what's actually going on with the heavenly realm is not these spiritual battles. It's like the elders, the ancestors, and the angels all dancing around us in a, in a state of joy, which is, I think, to me, a more appropriate way to begin to think about how Advent operates when we're, especially in the midst of waiting and penitence and contemplation. Well, I think we've uh, talked this movie around and around, but I think that that about wraps us up for time. Uh, I'm so grateful for the conversation. And Brian, I'm so grateful you could take the time to be with us. Thank you for being here. All right, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So Matt, tell me, what's your postlude for the week? So I recently discovered, as, as a kind of Netflix one-off on one of those nights where I was just looking for one thing to watch once, uh, something called uh, Chef versus Science, The Ultimate Kitchen Challenge. <laughs> what a title. I know. This is a BBC special from 2016 that has found its way into American Netflix's odd catalog of cooking shows, which it spits out to me with regular season yeah. regularity because it knows me too well. Same, same. Uh, so Chef versus Science. In one corner, we have two-star Michelin chef Marcus Waring. I'm going to mispronounce some names here, and I apologize. In the other corner, we have material scientist Mark Mudownowick. 
each of whom was going to cook a dinner of tomato soup, steak, mashed potatoes, and what in America we would call chocolate lava cake. The chef uses very classical culinary techniques, and the scientist does things like make the tomato soup in a centrifuge and prepare the steak using liquid nitrogen. It's so funny. What an incredible premise. Adam, I wanted this to be good. Like, okay, let me ask you. Matt, was this good? No. No, it's not good. <laughs> First of all, the scientist, who I believe is like the UK version of Adam Savage, although he actually does hold a tenured faculty position somewhere, but he's clearly found his way into this kind of pop culture scientist thing. He fails in almost every respect. Like, his food looks terrible. <laughs> the, the, the steak is kind of interesting. He does it in a sous vide, and then he wants to get the Maillard reaction all the way around the steak, and so he puts it in a deep fryer. But to solve the problem of overcooking the middle of the steak while it's in the fryer, he freezes the outside of it with liquid nitrogen first, um, in between the sous vide and the deep fat, which actually ends up looking like it works reasonably well. But there are other pieces in here that just look terrible. I don't want to start on his mashed potatoes. But I would also describe the most interesting to the show, for, to me about this show, is this very kind of tenuous relationship that these two characters have with one another. I would describe the look on the chef's face the entire time as I am tolerating this because of a paycheck. So the whole time, I couldn't help but think that this special felt like a bite-sized version of so many of the conversations we have about faith and religion and spirituality up and against natural sciences. Like, this is a rabbit hole I don't want to fall into in this podcast, but, like, it's not hard to draw a line between the accumulated wisdom and tradition of classical culinary arts and the kind of priestly rites of institutional religion that I find myself professionally associated with. And I found myself not just a little glad that the chef won every round of this hands down. But then on the other hand, there were like there were some nice moments. There was there was there were some moments where each one of them kind of piqued the other's curiosity. Like the sci the scientist kind of realizes that actually all that food is better with butter, and so what happens if we try to put a bunch of butter into it, which he might try the next time. And even the chef kind of looks at that sous vide and nitrogen method and is like, that's an interesting thing. I wonder what I could do with that. Or the tomato soup broth that is formed from a centrifuge doesn't taste as good as real tomato soup, but it's an interesting ingredient that we might do something interesting with. Uh, and I, I appreciated those kind of moments of puncture, and it felt like there was learning to be accomplished on both sides, uh, when it felt like they both recognized that they had a mutual goal, which was making the best mashed potatoes, which is a Thanksgiving dream that I'm happy to sign up for, Adam. So that's, that's what <laughs> this I... Is, this is amazing. So first of all, I really want to watch this now, because I'm... And I will tonight, probably. Uh, yeah, but it also seems to me like... The idea that you would pit a professional chef against someone who's not a professional chef to, like, make a dish is ludicrous on the face of it, right? Like, well, they, they, they can't, they can't face, face them against each other to make a science experiment. Like, it's like, No, because, I mean, in some ways it's totally insulting to the chef that, right. that you would ask someone who has very little culinary experience to walk in and, like, like cook a dish in the... And and do something that this person has devoted their life to, and is actually very accomplished at. It, I don't walk into science labs and goes like, "All right, look out, everybody! I'm about to experiment on some stuff." Right. Yeah, um, so. That said, there is like I don't know. It would be interesting to talk to the types of chefs who are well versed in science, right? Like there are these people who have a right. sort of bilingual side of things. And I, I actually find that those ministers actually have a lot to offer in today's yeah. like church is that you, they have a, they have a, they have a science vocabulary, they have a religious vocabulary, and they're the ones who can actually do the important translation and mediation. Right. And like the, the fundamental currency there is curiosity, right? Yeah. Like, you know, and curiosity that is more powerful than like some kind of territorialism that is like, I, you know, I don't want to learn more because I need to guard my own turf. Uh, and I, but I, I, so when the curiosity comes through, I think there's something that's really beautiful there. It is not, however, this episode of television, which is not 
beautiful. Um, so, <laughs> well, and I think it's so like I, pitting them as in competition is part of the problem, right? Like, what, the, no, they're not going to get the show made if they're like a chef and a scientist collaborate on a meal, right? Um, and yet, that's exactly what you'd hope would happen. Yeah, yeah, and it does in its own strange ways. All right, so. fair enough, Adam. What, what that about wraps it up for me. What do you got? So it's time for Christmas music, oh, even though it's gosh. not yet Advent where Matt and I sit. Um, it is time for me to play all of the Christmas music. Uh, and there are two things uh, that are worth a mention in this season of Christmas music. Uh, the first is Elizabeth Mitchell, who is mostly known for uh, kids' music uh, that adults could also listen to and not hate. Um, she has a incredible Christmas album that is totally worth uh, listening to. And it has really great arrangements of some hard-to-find Advent and Christmas tunes, a lot of uh, sort of American folk Advent and Christmas hymns and tunes. Um, and my favorite on the album is the Cherry Tree Carol. You know the Cherry Tree Carol, right? Sure. Of course. Um, which, by some accounts, is as old as, like, the 15th century. Uh, it also is included in the Child Ballads, which is a very famous collection of old English folk tunes um, about Mary and Joseph way to Bethlehem for the census, and they, you know, pass through a cherry orchard, and Mary asks Joseph to, you know, get her some cherries, and Joseph gets super indignant and is like, why don't you ask the guy who impregnated you to go get those cherries? Um and then the baby Jesus in the womb of Mary, like, commands the tree to bend low, and and Mary then picks some cherries. And then there's this fourth verse that doesn't often get sung, where Joseph repents and, like, has some change of heart. And uh, it's a really beautiful carol. Um, a lot of folk singers have butchered it, but Elizabeth, Elizabeth Mitchell gets it right. Um I'm taken with the whole song and she captures the anguish and the hope of the song. She captures this sort of strange um, foreignness of this story that doesn't show up in scripture, but is part of some larger Christmas traditions. And uh, it's, it's such a good song that I want everyone to listen to her version of it um, because it's, it's, it's haunting in its own way. So that's my postlude. Christmas music, the Cherry Tree Carol in particular, but Elizabeth Mitchell's specifically. All right, Adam, that about gets us to the end. One more thanks to Brian Blunt for hanging out with us today. Next episode, Adam, it's more Christmas. We're going to have our annual Christmas special where we will talk Christmas movies until we run out of things to say. Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, leave a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend. If you've got ideas for guests, give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter and let us know who you want to hear from. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Mostowski, who was helping us out. Our music was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band Space Cabin. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt. <laughs>